I mean, that is what you call an imprecatory psalm, and that is a psalm where the psalmist prays for the Lord's vengeance against his enemies. That psalm of David was a prayer against his enemies, and uh, we can, by God's grace, do the same thing, pray against the enemies of the Lord's church and the Lord's people. Pray for their repentance and pray that the Lord may have mercy on them, but also pray that God may avenge those who uh, try to harm his people. And that is what we see in that psalm. And let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, first we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, asking you to hear my prayer according to Christ's finished work on the cross. Father, this morning uh, as a church, the first thing that we pray for as we lift up your name this morning is the and the desire for your truth. Jesus himself said in John 8 at 32, many people quote this, but they quote it out of context. Well, Jesus himself said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you tr free. The first question, Lord, we have to ask is what is truth? Whose truth is Jesus referring to? He's just not referring to things that are true, but he is referring to your truth, the very words of the Lord, the word of God. That we shall know your word, which proclaims your truth. And Lord, as we know your word, we submit to your word. As we submit to your word, we obey your word. And as we obey your word, Lord, we are set free from the bondage to sin, from the bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're saved from the bondage and slavery and tyranny of sin. Lord, our world is in a search for truth and they're looking in all the wrong places. But as believers, we must center ourselves in your revealed truth, which is your word. There is no other truth that exists outside of your word. Now, truths may come from your word, but your word is ultimately the source of all truth. Jesus himself prayed for his followers, his disciples in John 17 and 17, where he called on you, Father, to sanctify us in your truth. For your word is truth. Lord, set us apart in your truth. Set us apart by your truth. Set us apart for your truth. Because, Lord, your word is truth. Your word is the word that gives us life. Opinions may vary, but, Lord, your word is truth. May those of us in here who are believers adhere to proclaim 
live by and defend your truth. May we not compromise. May we not uh, capitulate or give in or bow the knee to all the false ideologies and worldviews and philosophies of our day in which we live. Lord, give us all a hunger here in the living church, all of us corporately as a church and individual members that make up this church, Father. Give us a desire. Give us holy, gospel-filled, gospel-fueled desire for your truth. To stand on your truth. To proclaim your truth. To live by your truth. And to defend your truth, no matter what the cost may be. And Father, your truth includes the fact that all of us were made in your image. Your word says in Genesis 1 and 27 that in the image of God, you created them. Male and female, you created them. And in the last verse of that chapter, the scripture testifies that you looked at everything that you made and said it is very good. And that very good included all image bearers of you. From the point of conception until the point we take our last breath, we are a very good creation of you. We are your image bearers. You even told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and 5 that you call him from his mother's womb. Lord, you knew us before we were even made, before we were fashioned in our mother's womb. You already knew us. You already had our life set out before us. But Father, we live in a nation where since 1973, over 60 million babies have been slaughtered for the sake of so-called freedom and rights. A nation that kills its babies cannot be a nation, Lord, that you will look upon favorably. And even today, as I stand up and pray this prayer, you have people who care more about babies being murdered than the right to life that those babies have. That they're protesting in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices. Father, what an abominable act. What indignity. That instead of worshiping you on the Lord's day, people are worshiping the right to murder babies. They're upset because more babies will be born. Lord, that is an abomination to this nation. And we as believers should be indignant about that. Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on those people. May you not give them over to depraved minds, but Father, may you call them to repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ in which they will have a biblical worldview. And Lord, we even have a government. We have a, a president and a vice president and an administration that believe that babies should be murdered even all the way up to the point of birth. 
Lord, what great damnation that brings to us as a nation that allows that. Father, we pray for our governing authorities. We, we pray for their repentance. We pray, Father, that you send men up to the White House, up to Washington, D.C., up to the Capitol building to proclaim repentance, to repent and believe the gospel, turn to Christ, that their sins may be blotted out, that their hearts may be changed, and therefore their thinking be changed. Because, Lord, one's thinking cannot change until first their hearts have been changed. Their hearts have been regenerated. Lord, you are the sovereign God. You are God. You are the sovereign Lord over all world governments, over all world rulers. Paul commands us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 5, to pray for those in authority. And that authority comes from you and you alone who is sovereign. And that authority is supposed to promote human flourishing for all of its citizens. But Lord, our government has failed in doing that. And Father, we call them to repentance this morning. All of our governing authorities at the federal le level, uh, the states across this great union, local authorities, hospitals, doctors, medical professionals. Lord, we're praying for hearts to be changed, hearts to be transformed. Lord, we're praying for you to bring revival to this land, that men may be converted, that hearts may be changed by the proliferation of the gospel. And Lord, I pray for the witness of the church that we continue to be the church, that we continue to proclaim your truth unashamedly, unabashedly, without holding back. Do it with love, but still do it, Father. And Lord, I pray for all of our sister churches as we've been talking as brethren. Strengthen us. Strengthen Bob and and his elders and Carlton and his elders and, and Phil and his elders and myself and Anthony and, and Justin Holland and his elders and Cody Hale and his elders and all the other like-minded brethren. Anthony and his, his flock. Strengthen all of us, Lord, all of us as men that we may be bold on the front lines preaching the gospel shepherding our flocks and encouraging our flocks to do the same thing to, to hold forth to your truth to not compromise to not bend the knee Lord give us all gospel boldness in this day and Father we come to our message as we pray this morning that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well to preach to your glory as we talk about the threatened people in this chapter, the Jews being threatened by someone who hates your people. May the gospel be made clear. And Lord, may you send your spirit to make clear all the truths, to illuminate all the truths that we will hear this morning. 
Father, speak to us from your word, and may we hear and receive the grace of the preached word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're in Esther, the third chapter. A threatened people is our message, and look at the first two, two chapters of the past two Lord's days. The first one set the stage where uh, Queen Vashti was banished from the presence of the king, and the second chapter was his search for a king. We looked at it last week. Now that Esther is in place, uh, this morning we're going to look at another character in God's story, and this is Haman. And we're going to, uh, this chapter primarily uh, focuses on Haman and Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's first cousin, and um, we're going to look at a couple of things this morning. One of them is uh, the roots of anti-Semitism, the sin of uh, partiality. Some call it racism. I call it partiality because it's the biblical term for it. So let's look at our chapter this morning. Chapter 3 of the book of Esther. And hear the word of the Lord. This is Haman's conspiracy. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set him above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage or obeisance to Haman. For so the king had commanded, excuse me, concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were with in the king's gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Mordecai was filled with wrath. He became indignant. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Man, talk about somebody killing your dog when you kick that cat. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast lots, or purr, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed 
and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work and bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, on the 17th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Susa the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was in confusion or perplexed. Interesting story, huh? You see how that unfolded quickly? As they say, they went sideways real fast. They went from zero to 100 real quick. One of the ugliest sins is the sin of ethnic partiality, otherwise known as racism, as people say it today. One, that is one of man's greatest sins. And the reason why it is is because all of us are image bearers of God. As Paul proclaimed in Acts, the 17th chapter, God made from one blood all flesh. All human beings, regardless of melanin count in their skin, have one mother and one father, and that is Adam. All of us do. All of us have the same blood. We all come from one bloodline. And so to suppose that a person of one skin color is superior or inferior to another is a grave affront to God's created order. And this sin is a sin of the heart. It is a sin of the heart because it originates in a person's heart. It originates in their thoughts, their motivations, which all come from the heart. That is where it begins. It is a sin of the heart. And we as believers must look at this sin as such. Until a person's heart is changed, they're going to be partial. That's why, and those of us who've been 
coming to this church long enough know. We don't believe or subscribe to worldly philosophies, worldly ideologies that say that there are different types of churches, that there's a, a black church. You hear people say the black church. There's no such thing in scripture. The church is not divided by skin color. The ethnicity of the pastor and the congregants does not matter. It is of little significance. But the world has made it into that. And we saw that just Wednesday night beginning that video from Miki uh, Addison on critical race theory and it seeks to divide everyone by race, by skin color. And it has crept into the church. Where you have so-called black Christians being suspicious of their white brothers and sisters in Christ. Looking at them with suspicion because we've been told that white people are irredeemably racist and that black people are perpetually victims. You know how sinful that sounds? But we have people in the church who believe that. I can't look at Daryl and Mary and Emily and Heather and Jeremy and Melissa and the girls with suspicion. And I won't do that because one is a sin and two, I have no cause to. In the body of Christ, it should not be. In the world, yes, the world is going to world. The world is going to be the world. The world is going to do what the world is going to do. As 1 John 5 reminds us, we are of God. And the world is under the sway of the evil one. That's in 1 John 5. We are of God, beloved. We don't have the same philosophy. We don't have the same ideology that the world does. But that's one of the ugliest sins. And we see it at play in this book. The main plot of Esther begins to unfold in this chapter. The first two chapters set us up to where uh, we are now. And as I said earlier, in this passage, we're introduced to the fourth main figure in his narrative, and that is Haman. And he is perhaps the most sinister person in this book and in all the Bible. And we will learn more about him as we make observations and we uh, make an exposition of this text. So again, questions to consider as we've been doing with this book. What is the author's purpose? It's to show that despite the evil schemes of Ahasuerus and Haman, God's providential plans for his people cannot be thwarted no matter what. No matter Ahasuerus' plans, his edict, and Haman's desire to kill all the Jews, God's plans cannot be thwarted or extinguished. What does God want to accomplish through the author? He wants this author of this book to affirm that he protects and saves his people. That he is presently active in this world in doing that. And that he is, per he is working his purposes out despite this plot. 
he is still working his purpose out. What values does this passage have for us today? Again, there's three of them. One is divine providence. We've been talking about that. The, the overarching theme of this book is divine providence. God's name is not mentioned in this book, but we see the providence of God. That though Haman had as a plan to annihilate the Jews, <laughs> because the text says so, to annihilate. That means to wipe off the face of the earth. To destroy them. Though he has these plans. Which will end the covenant promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And Daniel in uh, 2 Samuel the 7th chapter. That God is going to use the evil Haman to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness to the Lord. He's going to use an enemy of God's people to demonstrate his purpose. And again, a reminder of God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldean and go to a place that he would send him. He made a covenant with Abraham and he affirmed it, I think, three different times that he is going to make him a father of great nations, that all the nations of the world through him would be blessed. That was a promise that God made to Abraham. And so far as we read in Scripture, God has seen that through. And God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter, that there will never fail to be a king on his throne. And that passage was ultimately speaking of Christ, who sat on the throne of David. Had the Jews been wiped out, had Haman's plan come to pass, there would have been no Christ. So God providentially kept his covenant promise then number three we see the sin of ethnic partiality racism that, that Haman would want all the Jews to be annihilated because of the refusal of one man <laughs> to bow down to him is very dark and very sinister it shows the depth of the unrestrained anti-semitism of Haman It also demonstrated the depths of evil that, uh, that the unregenerate heart can go to. A true Christian cannot be a racist because a Christian's heart is transformed by the gospel. The gospel has no room for ethnic pride or ethnic superiority. The Bible has no room for that. The Christian life has no room for that. I can't take pride in my skin color because I had no choice in the matter. I couldn't help where I was born, how I was born, who my parents were. Was that determined by me? So why should I have pride in that? Did I, why should I have pride in something I had nothing to do with? But it is a sin to have pride in your ethnicity. There's no room for the Christian to have that. So some observations on the text. Begin at the very first verse. We're introduced to Haman. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him 
and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. What did we learn about Mordecai? He was a descendant of Agag. Agag, uh, if you know biblical history, he was king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel. We see that in Exodus, the 17th chapter. That the Amalekites were the enemies of God's people. We see here in Exodus 17. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men to go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and they went to battle before Amalek. And it says here, verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then we read in Deuteronomy 25, where God told Israel to destroy the Amalekites. The Lord says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way? And you notice he's referring to Amalek as he because they were a nation of people. And he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you, when you were tired and weary and did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you the rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So that's the history of the Amalekites. And at the time of Israel, Agag was their king. So the conflict between Haman and Mordecai mirrors the conflict between King Saul and Agag as we saw when you read 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. Saul went to battle against Agag and God told King Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites, all of them, the animals, everything. Because back in the book of Joshua and Judges, Israel did not totally conquer the Amalekites like they were supposed to. So the Amalekites was one of those nations that became a thorn in Israel's side. So when Saul became king, God tasked King Saul with slaying the Amalekites. But he spared King Agag. And of course, Samuel the prophet was sent to Saul and Saul was rejected as king. It says in 1 Samuel 15 and 8, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. I'm giving you all the context, the background to show you who this Haman is and why this plays so much into the narrative of this story and the people that he came from. So Saul did spare, Saul spared Agag when he was supposed to kill him. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel. The Lord told Samuel that Saul did not obey me as 
he should have. He had not, he has not performed his commandments. And Samuel was grieved. And he cried out all night. And he rose early to meet Saul. And Saul was like, hey, yeah, you know, all happy. And go luck and everything. Yes, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the, uh, of the Lord. And Samuel said, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Because God told him to destroy everything, even animals. But you heard the sheep going, you know, the bleeding of the sheep. And Saul said, oh, we bought them from the Malachites so that we can sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet and I will tell you what the Lord says. And then the Lord came back and said to him, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? I commanded you to destroy, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. He disobeyed God's command. So Samuel gave him the prophecy. And Saul turned to Samuel and asked for forgiveness. But the Lord took the throne away from him. And Samuel, the great prophet of God, said, bring Agag, king of the Malachites, here to me. So Agag, Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord. Samuel carried out the vengeance that Saul was supposed to. So this was the king Agag, who was leader of the Amalekites, who had grieved God and his people. And God told Saul to destroy, and he did not. This same Agag is who Haman is a descendant of. So you see the hatred that Haman would have knowing once Mordecai announced that he was a Jew. That that probably got in his goat, as we say in the country. Because Mordecai refused to bow down, so that's the next point that we, we see. In verses 2 through 5, we see that Mordecai, all the king's servants who were with him, bowed and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. There were many reasons that he could have done it. Mordecai took offense. He, he could have done it because he refused to perform human worship. He didn't want to bow down to a mere man. He could have done it because he was jealous of being overlooked because after all, it was, it was Mordecai who told the king about the plot on his life or told some of his servants about the plot on his life. The king also, Mordecai was, was jealous that the king elevated Haman except for him. Those are two possibilities, but that's not why. The right answer is that he was a Jew and Jews were enemies of the Agagites because of the story that I just read to y'all. Also, the Jews were to worship God and God alone. They were to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only true God they were to worship. Bowing down to an ancient enemy like 
the Agagites would have been unthinkable. It would have been unconscionable, as they would say. Bound down to the king would be different, though God's law discouraged it. And Mordecai's refusal to bow down, I don't know about you, but it reminded me of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, as is chronicled in Daniel, the third chapter. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar built that 90-foot-tall statue? And everyone had to bow down to it, but uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow to that statue. But the outcomes were different. You know, for Daniel's three friends, they uh, were thrown into a fiery furnace. And the three friends of Daniel also could not bow to the statue with a good conscience. They would either burn or bow. Hey, Mordecai didn't have that choice. He wouldn't have burned. But the three friends of Daniel, either they bowed or they were thrown into a furnace of fire. In Mordecai's case, it involved whether this was the right issue to take on. Because remember earlier, what did he tell Esther? He told her to hide the fact that she was a Jew, right? But now he don't want to bow down to Haman because Haman's an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews. But know this, people, the courage of making the right choice despite the cost is going to have to be made by all of us as believers. If the time hasn't come, it will come where the courage to make the right choice despite the cost will have to be made. That's why we always talk about not compromising, not capitulating, not giving in, not bowing the knee to the foolishness that's going on in our world right now. God is the one who gives us the boldness to be faithful in the midst of opposition. We have to pray and ask the Lord, God, give me gospel boldness in the midst of this culture. We have to be bold and stand on what is true. And that's what Mordecai did. There are two classes of people in this world. Only two. Those who bow down to Christ and worship him as Lord. And those who bow down to Satan, the evil one, the enemy of our souls, and worship him. One cannot remain neutral in the world. There's no such thing as someone worshiping nothing. All of us are worshipers. As the reformers say, all of us are unceasing outpouring. We are always worshiping something. The question is, who is the something? Who is the someone, rather, that we worship? Is it the one true God? If it's not the one true God, it is the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you're not worshiping God, 
you're not worshiping God. <laughs> okay? You may worship what you think is God, but when you worship God, you bow down to him and obey what he says. That is what makes a worshiper. Haman, as a Jew, knew the law of God. He knew that as a Jew, he could not bow down to a pagan. In this case, although it's situational, he didn't do it. Just like Daniel's three friends didn't bow down to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Next, we see Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. So, again, Haman is upset. It says in verse 5, where Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, he was filled with wrath. It means he was indignant, like, how dare he not bow down to me? Again, he wants to kill his dog, and Mordecai just kicked his cat. I'm sorry to use the kick, kicking the cat uh, uh, analogy. <laughs> no, I won't go kick a cat. But it's a thought. He wants to just kill, just go in for the kill for this one little thing that he didn't do. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy not Mordecai, all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom, the people of Mordecai. This is satanically motivated. This is the devil at work in the heart of a person who has partiality. This reminds me points in history. Haman became the prototype of all anti-Semitic leaders who want to destroy the Jewish people. I will say this. In all of world history, Jewish people have been the most persecuted. They have been. They have been. Even in 88 B.C., uh, when Mithrathates the sixth in Greece, he ordered a general slaughter of everyone who was Italian, men, women, and children of every age, to do it in one day. A specific day was set forth for the massacre. And over 80,000 people were killed in one day during that massacre. You've always had in world history groups of people who were persecuted to the point of death. Of course, we have in modern history the mass genocide of over 6 million Jews in, in uh, Europe by Adolf Hitler who sought to wipe Jews from the face of the earth. He called it the Jewish problem. The final problem in Germany is Jews. That's what Adolf said in his famous speech. And this we see with Haman shows the absurdity of his logic and the darkness of his sinful heart. That because 
one Jew didn't bow down to him. He thought all of them should be killed. That is how depraved the human heart can get. It leads to being very illogical and nonsensical. It just doesn't make sense. Hitler's final solution to the Jewish problem in Germany was extermination. And not just Jews, but also gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Polish people, Africans, all people in Germany that were not German, that were not Aryan, he sought to kill, and he did. Yes, Stalin in Russia, we talked about this with communism, what, what, what communism has led to the death of over 100 million people. Yes, Stalin in Russia, who killed over 20 million of his own people. Those who resisted the communist takeover of that nation were sent to the gulags in Siberia, coldest place on earth, to work themselves to death. Yet Pol Pot in Cambodia, who committed ethnic genocide of his own people. You had Chairman Mao in China, who performed ethnic cleansing of his people also. There are many examples of ethnicities of people who have been systematically slaughtered. And we see that primarily and more commonly with the Jewish people. Even until this day, you have nations who, especially in the Middle East, who hate the existence of Israel. You have the Palestinians over there who hate the Jews. You have uh, Iran who wishes to wipe Israel off the map. A lot of those nations over there don't like the existence of a Jewish state. They don't like the existence of Israel as a nation. And so we see this history of anti-Semitism going way back a couple of thousand years, about 2,500 years in world history. So you look at verse 7 here. In the, seventh, in the first month of the, I'm sorry, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast lots before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar. So verse 7 takes place five years after Esther becomes queen. So in that year, lots were cast. And these, uh, the events of this chapter are not occurring over a year-long period, but it's an elaborate game of chance over multiple days to determine a specific date in the year. So it was a, it was a long, drawn-out process. And the casting of lots by the pagans represented uh, the worldview of ancient pagans. But you see many forms of it today in our uh, culture. The casting of lots is seen in uh, spiritism, which is the worship of ghosts, which don't exist, by the way. Paranormal activity. Remember the whole paranormal activity craze about, what, seven, eight years ago, all those 
uh, movies that came out, Paranormal Activity, Insidious, The Conjuring, all these supernatural, spiritual uh, movies. That's all ancient paganism. That's what the casting of lots was like. Horoscopes, magic, uh, various forms of Eastern religions like uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism and Taoism. Those religions are based on uh, pantheism, which is the belief uh, that everything is divine and that everything is one with God. All of that centers from all this pagan worship that we see in the casting of lots. And the casting was a, of, of the lots was also about being lucky. And luck is also Eastern. It is pagan. When you say good luck or bad luck, you're evoking uh, paganism, believe it or not. Because it's about luck and chance and, and, and fate and casting lots was about the same thing. So the Persian version of casting of lots involved a stone die, just, you know, die just one die, so to speak. It involved a stone die, which would be used for decisions that require an element of chance. Although the chance was usually chalked up to the will of the gods, the Lord G gods, by the way. It was up to the gods to uh, make the die roll however it was supposed to all paganism. So after the lot was cast and the date was set, Haman went to tell the king of his plan to exterminate the Jews. It says here in verse eight, Haman said to the king, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. So perhaps his kingdom was so vast that uh, Xerxes didn't even know who all reside in this kingdom. So his right-hand man let him know. He says, their laws are different from all the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. So they infiltrate all regions of the empire. They are unlike all the other uh, law-abiding people of the empire, and they are rebels who defy the king's laws. So that's how Haman painted them that they were rebels. They didn't obey the king. Of course the king wouldn't like that, right? So what did Haman do? Haman's very smart. He knows one thing, that if the king issues a decree, then guess what? It has to do what? Go through. Remember, all decrees of the ancient kings, once that decree was written and that signet ring was pressed into it, that's like a notary seal, so to speak. It's a done deal. Haman knew that. So it says, Haman suggested a decree be written that the Jews will be destroyed. And of course, again, a decree made by the king was irreversible. No matter how absurd the decree was, it had to be followed. How swiftly Haman wanted to get rid of the Jews. He wanted this to be quick, fast, and in a hurry. So it says, verse 9, it pleased the king, let the decree be written, that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents. MacArthur says in his notes, that's about 375 tons. 
that's a lot <laughs> okay over 740,000 pounds and it was almost 70% of the revenue of the king that's how bad he wanted to get rid of these people he, it would, he would put into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries so what did the king do he took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman so they gave Haman free reign to do as he pleased with the Jews and the deed was done as we read in verse 11 the stage was being set it was being set just like that Haman thought that uh, everything was going to happen but there's a sovereign God every decision is from the Lord as the writer says in Proverbs 16 and 33 it says the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from who the Lord it's the Lord who sovereignly providentially allowed this to happen why because this was part of God's purpose and plan for his people it seemed like it was bad so with the decree being published the anti-Semitism of Haman was on full display. Verse 13 says he planned to do what? Destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. That's, that's like overkill. And regardless of age. Regardless of age. He did not care. He says both young and old, little children and women. and also their possessions ought to be seized so you kill them and then you plunder them so what the writer is doing here he is conveying to the readers the utter seriousness and utter totality of these events that the Jews anticipate because don't you know there were Jews living throughout this whole area and they saw the word probably got around to them that this is going to happen on a certain day. So I'm sure that those Jews throughout the empire were filled with consternation. They were filled with great fear as they should be. Now, this edict would have taken up to three to four months to reach all the provinces. So it was, it was slow and it was, was slow in, in our context but as it was spread God's people were perhaps undoubtedly filled with fear and trepidation you know thinking about verse 13 for a second where it says uh, about their possessions it says here and to plunder their possessions this reminds me uh, when Hitler his plan to exterminate the Jews you know once they captured the Jews had to give over all their possessions which the Germans used for their financial gain and it 
excuse the graphic nature of this, but in the concentration camps, camps, when I don't think about camps, in the concentration camps, uh, when the Jews died, before they piled their bodies up, either to go into the crematoria or to go into the mass graves, if they had gold teeth or gold caps, they pulled those teeth out, uh, you know, to melt the gold down. That's what they did to them. When they got onto those uh, trains, those uh, boxcars, and, and piled them in there to the point where they couldn't move around, when they got off those trains at uh, Auschwitz, Birkenau, uh, which is where the crematoria was, or uh, some of the other uh, death camps, they immediately took all their possessions from them. They put the purses in a the pile, they put the wallets in the pile, all personal possessions. And when they rounded them up to get on the trains in the different parts of, of Europe where they took them from, they had to leave all their possessions behind. They were going to be used to finance the German war machine. They plundered all their possessions. That's what they did to them. Watches, jewelry, anything. They plundered all their possessions. That's what um, Hitler and the uh, SS uh, did. So in the midst of preparing for the day to kill the Jews, the king and Haman sat down to drink <laughs> while the citizens of the king's city were confused. What confusion they were facing. Because it says this in the text. The king and Haman sat down to drink and they drank wine back then. They didn't have a glass of sweet tea like I would have. They sat down. And most likely, although the text doesn't say, but you can assume with this edict going out that the, the people were confused, like, what's going on? Why all of a sudden they want to kill all these people? They haven't bothered anybody. They haven't done anything. They're, they're living peaceful, quiet. You didn't hear anything even in looking at uh, history about the Jews raising up a ruckus. They just lived their lives as, uh, as Jews, as God's people. They didn't, they didn't cause any trouble in any of these empires. So the people were probably confused, like, why did to them what, you know what have they done but the king didn't care and Haman didn't care Haman was like okay I did my deed let's go have a drink let's sit down and drink wine that shows you again the depravity of Haman and his heart amen so what are some implications of all this theological implication number one Despite all of this, God still protects and saves his people. All is not lost. God is the righteous king, will protect his people and save them from the tyranny of sin and Satan. Unlike King Ahasuerus, who is an evil king, God is the righteous king. God protects people. Ahasuerus wants to kill people, so God is a righteous king. He is a glorious king who will protect his people and save them from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of Satan. Just as he will use Mordecai and Esther to save the Jews from certain annihilation. Unlike Ahasuerus, God is presently active in this world. Although Ahasuerus and, and Haman seem to have the upper hand, 
in their plan to exterminate the Jews, divine providence is on the side of God's people. Why? Because God made a covenant again with Abraham to make him a great nation. He made a covenant with David that there will not fail to be a king on his throne. Divine providence will see to this happening despite Haman's plans. Friends, don't give up on God when it seems dark. Don't do it. God will take care of his people. Those who are his. Those who call him Abba Father. Those who are his children. Those who are the sheep of Christ. Our great shepherd. God will take care of us. No matter how dark it gets. And it does get dark sometimes. Life does get hard. Life does have challenges. It does. We live in a sinful world. We ourselves are sinners. But God be praised that he is faithful to his word, that he fulfills his promises. Just as Paul proclaimed in, not Acts, in, in, in Romans 8, life nor death, nor principality, nor power, nor things are present, nor things to come will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Paul asks, who can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Who can lay a charge against God's elect? No one. That's the promise that we have. The Jews had this same promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to David. That he was going to preserve his people. That he was going to make them a great nation. And those Israelites who held on to that promise. When that edict went out. They were not worried. Because they believed in the God who kept his promises. It's like Joshua before he died. He told Israel. In uh, I think it was Joshua the 23rd chapter. That not one promise of God has not failed to come to pass. That God has fulfilled all the good promises of his word. God is active in this world. Like Psalm 126 says, He who watches Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. God is not asleep at the wheel. He's not somewhere taking a nap. <laughs> I always active in the life of his people always saints always 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 there's never a moment when God is not active in our life don't look for your emotions to tell you that because your emotions are fleeting your emotions will tell you in a moment of despair that God doesn't care about you that's what your emotions will say your emotions will tell you that God has forgotten about you. No, don't trust your emotions. God gives us our emotions, but our emotions can be disordered. No, we trust in the promises that God has made in his word. And that's what we see, that he is active. He made a covenant 
with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. Despite Haman's wicked plans. Despite how deep and dark it looks. I was thinking about uh, when I was talking to Pam uh, Hughes when she came Wednesday night to pick up those um, baby bottles. And, and we were both rejoicing about the, the draft heard around the world that, that came out from Judge Alito about the possible overturning of Roe versus Wade. And she said, this is the result of 50 years of prayers from believers for babies to be saved, for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. 50 years of prayers from believers praying that that day would come when Roe versus Wade will be overturned. It's not going to stop abortion because it'll go to the states, but praise God that it won't be left up to the federal government to mandate it. And that perhaps God will turn hearts back to him to continue to save more babies. It's not over. We got to keep praying. Amen. The third implication is that God is working his purposes out. The story of all the Bible is God's redemptive plan for sinners through the personal work of Christ. God's ultimate purpose of redemption and salvation for the Jewish people is working out in this book despite the grim plans of Haman. The whole story is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about redemption through Jesus Christ. The saving of the Jewish people from annihilation will lead ultimately to the birth of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. As I said in the beginning, if Haman's plan went through, the Jewish people would be gone. Christ was a Jew. There would have been no Christ. But from the beginning, from the fall, God promised a redeemer. That the serpent would bruise his heel, but Christ would crush his head. And Christ, when he came up out of that grave, crushed the head of Satan. And Satan's head is still crushed. Christ is the promised Messiah that came through the Jewish line. So God's purpose is still working out. Despite the threats, despite the murderous threats that come against believers until this day, they come against the church until this day, guess what? It's not going to stop God's plan. It's not going to stop God's purposes. What did Jesus say? Upon this rock I build what? My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They will come up against the church. They will press in. There will be pressure from all sides. But they will not prevail. They will not overcome Christ's church because this church belongs to Christ. And Christ will defend his church. He will defend his bride. He would defend his bride. 
and he will defend those who are in his body who are all believers. Praise the Lord. Applications here as we close. Obey God rather than man. That's Acts 5 and 29. When the disciples were told they were on trial for proclaiming the gospel. They were on trial many times. But Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Whenever men tell you to bow the knee to them, don't do it. You obey God. Don't fear man. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, in a great discourse about the coming persecution that they were going to encounter. He told him, don't fear him who is able to destroy the body but not the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. You don't fear man. You obey God. Don't obey man when he tells you to bow down to him, or to bow down to these worldly philosophies and ideologies that stand opposed to God. Don't do it for one second. Which leads to the second point. Bow down to the king of kings. We bow to Jesus alone. We only have one king. His name is not Anthony Fauci. His name is not Joseph R. Biden. His name is not Donald J. Trump. We only have one king. His name is Jesus. He is our king. We ought to bow to him. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We bow down to him and him alone. Not just with our mouths, not just with our physical knees. We bow down to him in our hearts and worship him as Lord. He alone is Lord. And lastly, we submit to the sovereignty of God. Leave everything to God to work out. Trust in his sovereignty. God is sovereign. He's over all. He made us all. He alone is sovereign. He is the only sovereign. He is the only one who is worthy. May God increasingly press into our hearts the reality of the gospel until our whole being burns with passionate love for him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is, it is such a joy. It is such refreshment for us as believers to know that despite the threats of the world, despite the threats of those who come up against your bride, the church, despite how the world tries to come up against us, Father, despite the plots of Haman as we've seen in this chapter, the wickedness of evil in the hearts of man. Despite those things, Lord, no one can derail your plans. No one can sabotage your will for our lives. No one can destroy the church, which is the body of Christ, which Christ is the head, which is the bride of Christ. Lord, many forces in our world, especially here in America, have come up against the church. 
have come up against your truth from which the church derives. But Lord, your word tells me that when the enemy comes in like the flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Thank you, Lord, that you defend your church. Thank you that you defend your people. Thank you, Lord, that you fulfill all of your promises. May we as believers be encouraged in that. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, those who have not bowed the knee to you, those who do not worship you as Lord, those who have not confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, that they do so while there's still breath in their bodies. Because one day they may not bow now in this life, but they will have to bow down to Jesus as Lord. As Paul said in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That means the atheist knee, the secularist knee, the false Christian knee, even the knees of us as believers, all of us, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to I pray, Lord, that you use your word to bring sinners to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and be saved from the misery, from the tyranny, from the judgment of sin. And your sins will be blotted out. You will receive a new heart which gives you a new nature, a new outlook on life, a new worldview, and you will see with new eyes. And Father, once again, lastly, increasingly present to our hearts the reality of the gospel until our whole beings burn with passionate love for you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.